How are we doing out there? We awake? We good? All right. So good to see you this morning. Listen, if uh, you didn't grab one of these on your way in today at the end of the service, we'll be partaking of the Lord's table together. We'll be um, just just honoring the Lord, remembering him with communion. It is so good to see you. It's my first week this year to be here with you. So I am excited. Um, we are back in what I call the forbidden zone. We are looking at Romans. We, today we're in chapter 11. If you've got your Bibles, open them up to Romans chapter 11. Um, I'll explain a little bit more about this forbidden zone in just a minute. But listen, if this is your first time here, maybe your first time back in a little while, um, I, we're so glad that you're here. Hopefully you'll take the time to go back to the guest reception area. We have a little bit of information and a gift for you. Um, but um, just in case you don't know, our whole purpose, the reason why we do what we do, the reason why I, I you know, work all week to, to try to prepare what the Word of God has for us is, is that we just want to inspire you to follow Jesus. And then we're hopeful that you will take whatever those next steps are wherever you are in your spiritual journey. Uh, like Tim mentioned, there are a couple of new new things going on, and, you know, starting up again. And so if you're not a part of a of a community group or a connect group uh, Bible study, we'd love to have you get a, be a part of one, especially the one if you are retired. Listen, you don't want to miss you don't want to miss the Wednesday morning fellowship time. It's going to be really great. So, um, well, we are in Romans 11 today, as I mentioned, I called it the forbidden zone. If I were to nickname Romans chapters nine through 11, I'd probably title it the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, there are a lot. I, I've just noticed this. There are a lot of pastors who jump over this section. If they're going to teach through the book of Romans, uh, they'll go all the way to the end of chapter eight and then they'll just restart in Romans chapter 12. And and I remember when that happened to me once and I was like, what's going on? Why did that happen? Um, I, I often go through, you know, different Bible studies and booklets and things like this. And I have a a a, a booklet or it's like sort of a question for small groups. So if you're involved in a small group, sometimes you go through a book together and it'll ask you questions and it's going through Romans and it goes through Romans. It actually skips nine, ten and eleven and it just starts up in chapter twelve. And I'm just thinking, wow. And so maybe you're asking, well, Kyle, if there's so many people skipping it, why are you teaching it? <laughs> Good question, right? Well, and there's a lot of stuff. Some of it is some of it is rather difficult and it's not necessarily practical. It's not going to teach you on how to get along better with your spouse or something. I mean, maybe maybe it will after that. You never know. Maybe I'll throw something in for that. But but why am I teaching it? And the reason why is um, I, I can't help it. I can't help it. Why, Kyle? Well, listen to this. In Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul called the church of Ephesus to come and meet him. And he gave a warning to the elders of the church of Ephesus. And listen to what he said. He said, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And that's that's the phrase right there. I, I didn't shrink away from from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You know, of all the things that are commissioned to pastors and elders, this is what you need to know for you for here. Or maybe one day if you go to another church down the road in, in, in the future, or, or if you know somebody who's going to another church, one of the things that elders and pastors are commanded to do is to present to you the whole counsel of God. And the reason Paul gives for this 
is that God bought the church with his own blood. That seems to me like it's a pretty good reason. You know what that makes? That makes the church the most valuable entity in the entire world. If God bought it with his own blood. So if this is your first time here, or maybe you've only been coming for, for a little while, this is why uh, I often will try to go through an entire book of Scripture. I don't just teach topically. I, I do have kind of a rotation. Um, you know, basically I'll go through like a New Testament book, or maybe I'll take a break and go topically for a little while, then I'll go through an Old Testament book. Maybe we'll talk about some theology, something like that. But that's, that's the way that we do it. And, and the reason why is 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So there's there's nothing in this book that isn't valuable for teaching us, for correcting. We all need bits of correction for giving us instruction and even for for rebuking. It's all here. And the reason why, because because God wants you to be thoroughly equipped He wants you to be just thoroughly able to live well according to him. And so Romans 9 through 11, it's not often skipped because it's difficult to understand. It's it's somewhat difficult to to teach through, but it's also difficult to receive. Um, In in Romans 9 and 10, if you're here with us when we did it, we looked at God's promises to to national Israel, to the nation of Israel. What did what did God say? What did he promise to them? And as he has, he stopped loving them. And, and we looked at some big issues like God's sovereignty and his election and choosing. And what about like the hardening of people's hearts? We're going to talk about that even a little bit today. But we looked at Pharaoh and his heart was hardened and how God, he sovereignly chooses. I mean, that's his right. You know, we looked at how he's he's the potter, we're the clay. And so we looked at some pretty tough issues um, in Romans 11. It specifically is talking about the future of the nation of Israel. And, and by the way, if you happen to be Jewish and you're here today, I'm, I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome. Um, today, we're going to be what we're going to be looking at is written from a Jewish man, a Pharisee who lived 2000 years ago. And he's a Jewish man who follows a Jewish savior, Jesus Christ. So. Um, question. How does Romans 11 fit into everyday life? Now, some of you, you've never read through Romans 11, so you have no idea what we're going to look at today. And I'm going to try to make some practical suggestions. But let me make a very crazy statement here. I think I I wonder, but I think this is probably true. If every Christian living in Europe in the 1800s, If every Christian living in Europe in the 1800s and all the way up uh, through the 1930s or so living in Germany, if every Christian understood this passage, it may have averted the Holocaust. The Holocaust. So so that that is taken from a Greek word meaning a whole burnt offering. That's how it felt. The Jews were just a burnt offering. They were destroyed. The persecution and deaths of six million Jews. If the Christians had understood this, it could have averted that. So, is this passage important? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say so. So, we left off in Romans chapter 10 and verse 21, and this is where we ended. 
Paul, Paul says, well, but to Israel, God says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. That's where we ended. Now, what does this mean? That God was holding out his hands to a, a disobedient and defiant people. Well, rather than me trying to explain it, how about I go back to something that Jesus said uh, when he was teaching during his earthly ministry? He actually taught this to the Jewish leadership of the day. So this is in Matthew 21. And if you want to turn there in your Bibles, feel free to. I, I should have it on the screen here. But in Matthew 21:33, Jesus says, I want you to hear another parable. He says, there was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. He dug a wine press in it and he built a tower and he leased it to vine dressers and he went into a far country. Now, who is the landowner who cultivated this? Well, the landowner is God. Who are the vine dressers who he's leased this property to? Well, it's the leadership of Israel. It would be the priests, the Levites, the, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Um, it says in verse 34, now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. Now, who are the servants here? Well, the servants in this parable are the, the prophets. God sent the prophets to the leadership to say, hey, you know, well, whatever he says, well, we're just going to stay within the, this parable. So, so how did the leaders respond when, when his servants came? And, and this is verse 35. The vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Now, this is historically accurate. God sent the nation of Israel prophet after prophet after prophet, warning them, saying, you need to repent. You need to turn back to me. Turn away from all the idols because they were worshiping all sorts of other gods and, and, and idols. And this is what they did. This is how they responded to the prophets. And so after centuries of this kind of behavior, now, now Jesus is kind of telling them this, this is the word. This is what's happened after centuries of behavior. He says this. Then, last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Anyone want to guess who the son is in this parable? Any guess at all? Could it be? Could it be Jesus? Yeah, it's the son of God, Jesus Christ. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Now, let's stop there. Did they mistake who he was? Did they just not know? They didn't know that he was who he claimed to be. No, 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 no. See, when somebody walks on water and they raise the dead, you know who they are. And it says they, they knew they saw the son and, and they said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So what is their motivation? Well, there's rebellion, wealth, pride, jealousy. In verse 39, it says, so they took him and they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. You know, when they took Jesus out, they took him out the Damascus gate north of Jerusalem. And then that's where they crucified him outside of the city. Verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Here's the interesting thing. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leadership. And they're hearing this and they can't help but respond. And this is how they respond. They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyards to other vine dressers 
who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. They don't yet get it that Jesus is speaking about them. Now, they get it in a, in a few verses later. They, they all of a sudden they realize Jesus was talking about us. But they don't get it. They say this is what they deserve, right? In 70 AD, God brought the Romans down to level Jerusalem. Just like he promised in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28. God swore upon himself. He, he says to Israel, if you renounce me for idols, I will spread you to the four corners of the world, to the four winds of the world. And he promises, I will discipline you. I, I, I won't let you just go your own way. And, and Jesus said in verse 42, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. The stone, that's the Messiah, which the builders, that's the Pharisees, rejected. That's Calvary. And he became the chief cornerstone. The death of Jesus Christ has become the foundation of the entire people of God. Like what Joseph said to his brothers, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The, the amazing thing is this, the the cross is the greatest act of rebellion in all of the cosmos. The most terrible act of rebellion, and yet it has become the very cornerstone of all eternity. This is marvelous. God says it is just marvelous before our eyes. This is the Lord's doing. And Jesus says, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And Jesus said this directly to the chief priests and to the to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees. They were leading Israel at the time. And he says, the kingdom of God is being taken from you. Don't you understand? And, and see, the Gentiles, the nations that God's going to give it to, they don't replace Israel. But the Gentiles do receive their king, Jesus as their king. The Gentiles do. They get a part in, in sharing in this, this new covenant. And, and, and we get the promise of the Holy Spirit living within us. We get an understanding of the scriptures. We're given a ministry where we get to be like, like a kingdom of priests reaching out to those throughout the world to, to share just the glory of who Jesus Christ is. And we're telling people we're waiting for his return again. Just like what the Jews said, we're, we're waiting for the Messiah to come. We're waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. We're looking for his throne. So, so this is the setting here when... When, when we read Romans 10 and we're coming into Romans 11. And so here's the question. If all this happened and Jesus even said this was going to happen to Israel. What about Israel? In Romans 11, 1, Paul says, I say, then has God cast away his people? And, and the answer, he says, is no, it can't be. It can't be because if, he, if it is, then God has gone against his promises. I put up there just one sample. First Samuel um, 2 or 12, 22, which says the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because he has it has pleased the Lord to make you a people. Now, what's the reason why he says that he won't forsake his people? He says it's for his name's sake. 
It's his reputation. It's his character. It's the attributes of all that he is. It's because of who he is, he won't do it. That means that he can never change. He swore upon himself, on his character, on his holiness, on his name. God can never go back on himself. He can't do that. And so God says, I I will never cast off my people because I've sworn by my name that I'll never do that. So again, in Romans 11, 1, I say, then, is God cast away his people? Certainly not. And then Paul says, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is going to give us two proofs, actually gives more than that. But immediately he's going to give us two proofs that God hasn't rejected Israel. The first is himself. And the second one he's going to look at is like Elijah. So before Paul's name was Paul, you guys remember what his name was? His name was Saul. Yeah, Saul. He was actually the chief persecutor or prosecutor of of all the people um, at the time they called themselves the way they were just they were Christians Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life no one um, I just lost a verse in the middle what pastors do that no one can follow you know it's so helpful when a hundred people say it at the same time (laughs) for those of you online you're having a great time with this uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can... I'm getting four verses put into my head. I'm just skipping now. To look this up later. Refresh my brain. But they call themselves the way. And that's the reason why. Because they're following Jesus. Now, Paul, he persecuted the way. He persecuted believers. And he put them in prison. Um, he, he ran after them, he followed them, he punished them, and even he, he, he was involved in killing them. And he's on his way to Damascus one day when God shows up, strikes him blind, and wakes him up. And at that point he realizes, I've been persecuting Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ is God, and I've been going against God himself. And so he repents, and he ends up becoming the, the chief... Apostle to the Gentiles to go out to all the Gentiles um, and, and he's laying the foundation of the church and, and he's one man among a remnant of other believing Jews who follow Jesus Christ. And he's a he's a living example. He says, look at me. I'm a living example. I'm Jewish and I'm a follower of Jesus. God has not rejected his people, the Jews. And then he gives us another example in the person of Elijah. He said, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what scripture says of Elijah and how he pleads with God against Israel? So if you were to go to first Kings chapter 19 and you would read really the incident of how Elijah challenged 850 prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. And they they go up to Mount Carmel and there's a challenge. Whose God is real? Who really is God? Who is the one true God? And so here's Elijah all by himself. And you have all the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. And and they they make altars. And Elijah makes just one altar. They've got their altars. I'll let you have most of the day to do this. The God who answers by fire, he's the real God. 
And they're trying to work on that. And, and Elijah is creating an altar. And then he takes these big, huge barrels of water and three times pours, pours barrels of water over this thing. So it is just totally drenched. And then he prays. And then God answers by fire and consumes not just the sacrifice, but the entire altar and all of the water and everything in the ground and the dust on the ground. And there's absolutely no question at all. Who is God? That Yahweh is the Lord, that he is God. And so then Elijah ordered the people and he said, this was basically a duel to the death. And so you're going to put to death all the the prophets of Baal. And they do. And then Elijah goes and he prays. It hadn't rained for three and a half years as a discipline on the nation of Israel because they have turned away from God and they turned to idols. And so he prays and he says, Lord, would you let it rain again? And God answers with a downpour. And it just soaks everything. And everybody realizes, or should have realized at this time, that this is God doing his thing. And at the time, King Ahab, Queen Jezebel, they're embarrassed. And you know what's interesting? Something that I learned, I love this quote when I read it. So this, when megalomaniacs are humiliated, they become more dangerous than ever. That's interesting. And that's exactly what happened. Jezebel and Ahab were humiliated. And Jezebel put out orders to put a hit on Elijah's life and let him know I'm putting a hit on you. We're coming after you. We're trying to kill you. And so Elijah, he runs, he runs 120 miles away and he is totally, he's lost all of his reserve energy, all of his power. Those of you who, who are runners or athletes, you, you understand this, but he goes off to the wilderness by himself and he gets depressed and he thinks he is the last faithful one in Israel because he saw absolutely no fruit of anything that happened of all those miraculous things. He didn't see anything happen like the people were now following in droves. And he says, he says this, he cries out twice, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. He actually says this twice to God. And Paul says, what was the divine response to him? God says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. And if it's by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now, what is he saying? He's saying in the same way. That God reserved 7,000 righteous men when it looked like there was none. God has reserved a believing remnant of his people, Israel. And God doesn't choose them based on their reputation, how well behaved they are, the good things that they do. He doesn't choose them based on that. He says he chooses them based on grace. What that means is. That it's not dependent on how they act and how good looking they are, how smart they are, any of their attributes. It's all about God choosing. God's the one that says, I'm just going to show my grace to you. You know, there's no one who is righteous. There's no one who is deserving of God's goodness. The only way anyone can receive it, if God freely just chooses to show his favor upon a person and then he's just done it and that's it. And it's not based on how good the person is. So let me stop here. Let's talk about grace for just just a minute here. Those of you here, which I'm assuming many of you are Christians, some of you may not be, and you can answer the same question. Do you think it's easier for God to love you when you're good? 
You think it's easier for God to love you when you are good? I mean, just, in, just think in your emotions and in the times when, you, when you've been particularly good. As opposed to the times when you've been particularly bad. You know, we've been going through Romans, but if you just track back in, in your mind to Romans 5, verses 8 through 10, and you go read that another time, there's this great reminder about how God loved us. And how he loves us is he loved us when we were weak. He loved us when we were sinners. And he chose to love us even when we were enemies. It's all about his choice. It wasn't about his, our performance. It wasn't about our behavior. See, see, let me tell you something that I think that we secretly believe in the core of our heart. There's a part of you that believes God chose you because you deserved it. And some of you are like, oh, no, Kyle, no. I just watched Tad. Tad did that. It just Phil did it too. Yeah. No, no, I'm not just joking, you guys. There's a part of us that believes that God chose us because we deserve it. And the reason why I know this, it comes out of us at certain points in time. This is a secret belief and it only really reveals itself when we've sinned against God. Because what happens when we sin, we realize something. Oh, I don't deserve this. Oh, God doesn't love me. Oh, and this is how we feel. We start thinking this way. And we begin to doubt God's love for us. Which means we're thinking that His love for us is based purely on our performance. You know, another way that this kind of reveals itself in our lives is when we think that there are some people out there and they are so bad, God couldn't save them. And you think about those people. And sometimes it's somebody at work or sometimes it's maybe somebody in the neighborhood or maybe it's a TV entity, you know, a political person. You're thinking, man, they are so bad, God couldn't save them. But see, let me just let me just pull back here. When this happens in our hearts, okay, when we begin to doubt, when we begin to think these things, what we need to do is we've got to drive the stake of grace just deep down in our hearts. We've got to go back and say, what is grace really? So, so let me just ask you a question. What is it that we really do deserve? You know what we deserve? Death. So let me just ask you, what is it that we deserve? Four of you. Great. Let me ask that again. What is it that we deserve? Yeah. How then could we be saved if that's what we deserve? Only by the grace of God. Only by God choosing, reaching out to us and saying, I'm going to pour my love on you. Why? Because I'm going to. I'm just going to do that. It's not based on how good you are. And, and, and man, we deserve Jesus, but what is well, we deserve great? We deserve death, but what does Jesus give us? He gives us grace. He gives us life. He gives us peace. And see, we're reminded of this because He displayed it on a cross for all to see throughout history. It, it was a historical event. It wasn't just some you know writing of some you know religious mystic. It's a historical event. He displayed His love. Christians are saved by grace, not by performance. This is what he's talking about, by grace. 
And, and Paul says, listen, God is reserved for him a remnant of people who are Jewish in all of their heritage, and they are following Jesus, their Messiah. It's all about God's grace. It's all about God's choosing. Verse 7, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Wow, okay, so Israel has not obtained what it seeks. And in chapter 10, verse 3, Paul said that Israel was, a, was seeking to establish their own righteousness. They didn't want God's righteousness. They wanted to establish their own. We can do it. We're good enough. We can establish our own righteousness. This is what they believe. And so because of that, they have not obtained it through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, listen, follow me, believe on me, trust in me. You trust in me and I will take care of your eternity. I will give you eternal life. I will forgive you of your sins. I will put my righteousness into your bank account, even though you don't deserve it. But Israel was unwilling to do that. And so therefore, they've not obtained it. Why haven't they obtained it? Because they've rejected Christ. And yet there are some in Israel, just like the Apostle Paul, they believe. And what does Paul call them? He calls them the elect. He calls them the the chosen. But then he talks about some who were hardened. When he says that they were hardened, Israel is under discipline for their sin. Remember what Jesus said? In the parable, I mean, in Jesus, he's still he's alive, he's teaching in his ministry, but he's telling us, he said, this is what's coming because of the hardness of your hearts. You're, you're, the nation is going under discipline. And so Israel is under discipline for their sin. And, and Paul, by the way, when you read this, uh, it's easy to forget something. Paul is talking about the nation. He's not talking about individuals. He's not talking, he's not speaking of of all these little individuals. He's speaking collectively of a nation, not an individual. And what he's saying is Israel as an entity, as a nation, has really hardened itself against the gospel of grace. They've kind of got this group think, this is the way we're going to think, this is just the way that it is. And and they're unwilling to to look to God and to really reevaluate these things. And so when they resisted Jesus Christ, what they basically said is, leave me alone. Leave me alone. I don't want to hear any of that. I don't want any of that. You know, Paul spoke about um, how Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Remember, we, we looked at that. Pharaoh continually was brought these plagues to him and he hardened his heart. Or, sorry, he, he continued in sin and, and he hardened his heart. And sometimes it says that God hardened his heart. And that's just he had made the decision. This is the way I'm going to go. And God says, yeah, OK, fine. That's the way you're going to go. He lets him go his own way. The same thing is happening here, but actually it's a harder word. It's a stronger word. That's a stronger meaning. Literally, this idea to, to harden, it means like to petrify. It's actually a medical term talking about a bone. Like you take bones and you break, you, if your bones break and you put them back together and you push them and they, and they regrow, it actually, it's a regrowth and a calcification that should be stronger than what it was originally. Well, this idea here, it means that you've got a, a continual closed mind, a continual insensitivity. And I'm reading some commentaries here. It means that they reject any other thought than the one they already believe. They've decided this is what they want to believe, and they, and they just kind of been hardened to that. It's like a callus built up over the Israelites that made them less sensitive to God. The other commentary says, 
God's hardening permanently binds people in the sin that they have chosen for themselves. They've chosen this is the way we're going to go. And God says, fine, I'm going to solidify that in you. By the way, can followers of Jesus Christ, can Christians develop calluses in their own heart toward God? One answer. Excellent. It's true. You bet. While a Christian cannot lose their salvation, they can, they can definitely do things to kind of callous their, their, their own heart or their own conscience. You know, 1 Corinthians 11 is, is the passage I go to every month. It's our communion passage. But it also tells us that because of the irreverence of the Corinthians, they were coming together for communion and there was a group of them that they would bring so much wine for communion that they would get drunk in front of everybody else. And then there were others who they had nothing, but they would come because they wanted to come to the Lord's table. But others would come and they would bring these huge, you know, picnic baskets full of food and they would hold a feast and they would be eating this. They would be gluttonous while others had nothing. And this is the way that some of them were doing it. And Paul says, listen, because of the way that you are doing this, because you're observing this, there are people in your church who are sick, and that's the reason why. And there are some people in your congregation who God says, I'm just going to take you home. I'm bringing you home early because of the way that you have practiced communion, because of your observance of this. And, and you're just you're not even really honoring the Lord. You're not even seeking Jesus and, and trying to bring together in community. A meal is meant to be that we all do it together. And he says, you're not doing that. And because of this, some of you are sick and some of you, God has taken them home. What does this tell us about our own hearts? You and I have a responsibility to do a heart check, to do a little conscience check. Are we just kind of going and doing our own things? Are we being genuine? Are, are we really doing a double check and say, what, what's going on in my life? Am I just reading through the Bible just to read through it? Or am, am I trying to say, God, would you speak to me? Or maybe I'm not even reading through the Bible at all. You have to do your own check because you know what? Your hearts can become callous. It's not, this is not an episode of like, oh, it's just only can happen to them. It can't happen to you. We can, we can do this. We can become callous to God. And I don't want any one of us to, to become this way. Well, in verse 8, Paul continues. And he says, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. He says up to this day today. Now, we're 2000 years later, but he's saying this up to the time when he wrote it. And as a form of discipline, God made it impossible for Israel other than the elect. To understand spiritual truth. If Israel wasn't going to go out and fulfill their missionary mandate, because the whole purpose of what they were supposed to do was to go and reach out to the nations around them. And they were supposed to bring the truth of who God was to the nations all around them to deliver the light of salvation to the Gentiles. And if they're not going to fulfill that missionary mandate, then God is just going to remove that from them. Then she's going to now be prevented from receiving the light herself. 
God says, that's what, if you're not going to take it to somebody else, I'm going to pull the light out from you. It's, it's kind of like a person. You, you, by the way, you know people like this. If you're one of these people, it's like a person who collects the newest and greatest, fanciest tools in his workshop. But he never builds anything. Yeah. Versus there's a carpenter who has just some like, you know, a few rough tools. Just the basic of tools, well-worn, and he's constructed shelters and built all sorts of things and, and, and furniture for many people. See, Israel's workshop was beyond compare when it came to all the available resources. But the problem is they, they weren't using their tools for God's purposes. So you know what God does? He took the tools away. Verse 9, David writes about this. It says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. This, this word actually means a retribution, a repayment to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow their back always. Verse 11, I ask then, did they not stumble into an irrevocable fall? Or, or they, they did not stumble into an irrevocable fall, did they? And then Paul says, absolutely not. In other words, is what Israel's going through, is this irrevocable? Is it never going to change? And he says, absolutely not. He says, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their inclusion bring? Let me summarize this, or let me try to explain this. First of all, Israel's downfall, it's not permanent. This isn't a permanent thing. You know, God has linked salvation with the Jewish nation in so many different ways. He made his covenant with Abraham. Um, he promised that salvation would come through the descendants of Abraham, which we know of as Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus Christ is not just the king of all kings. He's also the king of the Jews, right? Um, it's because... The Jews, it's because Israel rejected the gospel. What's the result of that? It came to the Gentiles. Because Israel rejected the gospel, salvation has come to the rest of the world. And now it's being declared broadcast for the rest of the world. But one day, Israel will trust in Jesus Christ again. The nation will turn to him. And he's saying this, when they do Words cannot describe the blessing which Israel's restoration will mean to the world. You can't describe the kind of blessing when Israel finally turns. It is going to be beyond words is the idea. In verse 13, Paul continues, he says, For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy... Those who are my flesh and save some of them. Paul is hoping that as he tells the, the gospel to everyone around and and the Gentiles begin to receive it, they begin to grow and the Jews start looking at that and they're saying, what, 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 what? I just I just heard that Gentile quote from Genesis. That's that's our book. I just heard that Gentile, he was, he was reading from, from the Jewish scriptures. That, those are our writings. Those are for us. 
And, and Paul is hoping that you see that the Gentiles are receiving this and that they start asking this question. Well, why should the Gentiles have all the blessings? Don't we have a prior share to them? And then he's hoping that they would choose to follow Christ. So let me give you a story, an illustration. I want you to imagine this. It's not, second service, this is going to go over like a lead balloon because it's closer to lunch. But for you, maybe this will help you. This is, this is something Chuck Swindoll, he's just a master storyteller. I just want to read this to you. Imagine that the best restaurant in the world open up in your town. Better than Carrabba's, better than Chick-fil-A. Okay, best restaurant in the world open in your town. They have everything you can think of from gourmet creations, prime rib and seafood, all the way down to grilled cheese sandwiches and hamburgers. So you get a table for your party of six or seven. And and because you're short on money, all you can afford is a hot dog and a basket of fries to share among you. At the table next to you, a party of 14 has ordered the best, most expensive food on the menu. A team of servers emerges from the kitchen and begins covering the table with the most delectable dishes you can imagine. But as soon as the culinary parade is concluded, the host suddenly stands up and says to the owner, Look, I'll pay for the meal, but nobody wants to eat this. This isn't really what we wanted. And they all stand up and they all walk out. And so with a feast all prepared and paid for with no one to enjoy, the owner glances your way and motions you toward the abandoned table. And he smiles as he announces, he says, there's no one else in the restaurant. And we're virtually closed. If you don't mind eating with some of the busboys and the waiter staff and me, you can have what the other party rejected. And before he's finished the last sentence, your feet are under that table and everyone is digging in. Now, imagine in the meantime, the other party is halfway home when they say to one another, wait, what were we thinking? We're hungry. Let's go back. But by the time they arrive, the doors are locked and you're just enjoying the first course of that five course meal. And so there they stand, noses pressed against the window, watching you, your friends, and the hired help enjoy what they could have had at their own feast. That's the picture. God has given us what they have rejected. And what Paul is saying is the way that we live, the way that we talk, the way that we share about the gospel, that it should be something that provokes jealousy to others. That they're like, hey, wait a minute. Shouldn't have that been ours to those who were Jewish? And see, this is the situation to the Jews who still need Jesus and, and the Gentiles all, all over the rest of the world. We haven't been saved for our own sake. We haven't been saved just for us to have. We, we've been saved for the sake of reaching other people, for God using us to reach other people, including people in Israel. See, see here's the main thought behind all of God keeps His promises. He made these promises to Israel millennia ago. And, and you know, we're used, to, we're used to kind of a dishonest generation, aren't we? People don't keep their promises. Um, wedding vows are broken. Contracts don't mean a whole lot. I was 
watching a, one of those court shows on TV over Christmas. My mother-in-law loves to have them on the TV, and I'm watching two people as they deliberate about who, who didn't tell the truth and who owes who $350 because of whatever it was. And it's just full of disputes of people who broke their promises. And you've got men of integrity, women of integrity that are very difficult to find. But God never breaks His promises. He will never break His promise to you. God is willing to harden those who are disobedient to His revelation. He's willing to create conditions that motivate the wayward to finally come and desire Him. And although Israel is under discipline, He has kept and He will keep His promises to them. The Jewish believers today are part of that remnant of Israel. Part of that evidence what this means is God will keep His promises to you. He, he can't help it. We can count on it. He will keep His promises. So what I'd like to do in remembering that is I'd like for us to get ready to take communion together. So if you've got your cup and your bread, I'd like for you to pull that out right now. Go ahead and remember as you remove the foil, you remove the cellophane first, and the foil after.
stand with me as we close in prayer today. Heavenly Father, first I want to just um, take some time to acknowledge your wisdom and your greatness. That you knew of this all along. Thank you.